Good morning, Southside. I pray that the Lord is with you this morning and trust that he is working in you and through you wherever you may be. Uh, Typically, when I do announcements, I'll say something to the effect of, thank you for coming to this gathering of Christ Church here at Southside Baptist. But unfortunately, we can't say that this morning. Uh, But we trust in the Lord's providence and we we pray that he would continue to care for you and, and we long for the day where we can gather once again. If you're new to Southside, we typically preach straight through books of the Bible, and so we're continuing to do that, even in this odd season. So if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We have gone through 11 chapters of Romans, and now we're, we're in the home stretch. Uh, and things take a bit of a turn this morning, so i uh, give you a chance to turn there if you need to go grab your Bible, pause the video, go grab it, and come back, uh, and we will dive in together. Uh, I would ask that I'm going to pray for us, and I would ask that you would pray for for your time as well. Father, I pray for the members of Southside this morning. Pray that as they hear your word, uh, as they respond to your word, Father, that that we would be people who give our lives as living sacrifices for you. Pray that your word would make that clear, that your spirit would compel us to obey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our main idea this morning, the main idea of the text, and so our main idea of the sermon is this. Because of God's mercy and by God's mercy, we worship Jesus in all of life. It seems to be clear from the text, and this is one of the key passages for understanding what it means for us as a church to pursue our core values. First of which is we worship Jesus in all of life, and this text makes that abundantly clear. It starts with an exhortation, I appeal to you. Now, the intensity of the language here can be kind of lost on us in English. The appeal here is one of strength and urgency. I appeal to you, I urge you, I implore you to do this. And then we have this word, therefore. Now, of all the therefores in Scripture, this one might very well carry with it the most weight, Sometimes a therefore can refer to a previous passage or a previous sentence, but this one has behind it the whole of Paul's argument from chapters 1 to chapter 11. See, chapter 12 is a turning point in the book of Romans. Paul pivots from his outlining of the grace and mercies of God to what that looks like in the Christian's life. Turn with me briefly to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, a verse that could, be, that could summarize what these 11 chapters are about. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this good news that comes from God, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Because these 11 chapters go something like this, telling us of the power of God for salvation. Not to everyone who works, but to everyone who believes, for both the Jew and the Greek. 
Chapters 1 through 3 go something like this. The Gentiles are unrighteous. The Jews, even with all their advantages, are also unrighteous. And if you somehow find yourself outside of one of those two categories, you too are unrighteous. But now, Paul tells us, righteousness appears on the scene. But it doesn't come from keeping the works of the law. It comes by way of faith. Faith specifically expressed in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. So that those who put their faith in Jesus are freed from condemnation and are justified, declared in the right by God. So that as Abraham experienced, we can have peace and fellowship with God because Christ reverses the curse. He redeems us from our sinful state and gives us his righteousness. He comes as the second Adam without Adam's sin so that he might establish a new humanity through himself. Then those that are found in Jesus have new life in him. No longer does sin have dominion over us, but we are raised in resurrection life to be slaves to righteousness and not to the flesh. And all of this is brought about through grace and not by the law because we have died to the law. Then in chapter 8, Paul makes clear that salvation, both our justification and our sanctification, is a work of the Spirit. And as God's adopted children, the Spirit lives within us, shaping us, empowering us, and securing us because we are loved by God. And all of those who are foreknown or foreloved by God will be saved according to God's sovereign plan that he set before the foundation of the world. Through the course of his plan, he will save his people, both Jews and Gentiles, in accordance with his promises because he is faithful. Therefore. See, this is instructive to us. We must keep in mind that in our study of the scriptures, particularly the epistles, we have to follow the course, trace the line of reasoning that the scripture presents to us. Because if we follow the line of Scripture, we will come to the same conclusions that the Scripture does. And this doesn't take a special knowledge. This doesn't take a secret ability. But it does take work. It does take effort. And it particularly takes dependence on the Spirit. But for the believer, this is an endeavor that we can do and should undertake. To understand the flow of the Scriptures so that we might understand the meaning of the scriptures. This is a weighty therefore. I appeal to you therefore, brothers. It must be given its proper due. By the mercies of God, he says. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, this is what he has taken 11 chapters to show us. What are the mercies of God? It is the mercy of God given to sinful man through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These works are God's mercy to us. So what should we do in light of God's mercy? Look again at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here, Paul draws upon the language of the temple and the old covenant. So for those that know their Hebrew scriptures, you know that worship for the Israelites was keeping the law of Moses, 
which included a sacrificial system. A large portion of their worship was their offering of sacrifices. Psalm 27 verse 6, a passage that connects worship and sacrifice. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. See, the psalmist understood that sacrifice and worship were two sides to the same coin. But in this new covenant that is instituted by the blood of Christ, something has changed. It's not utterly different. It's not totally different. We're still talking about sacrifices, but it is radically different. A root level change has occurred. Paul commands his audience to present a sacrifice, but instead of a bull, instead of a goat or a grain, he commands them to present their bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual worship, he says. And to drive these connections home any further of Old Covenant, New Covenant, the word for spiritual worship here could also be translated as reasonable service. A service, a word that is often used to describe work that occurs in the temple, a service rendered to the Lord. As so for Paul, this, this whole life giving over, this being a living sacrifice, is the rational response to the mercies of God. That when we come to reckon with God's mercy, we will render our bodies, body and soul, our whole self, in worship to our God. Bodies, again, here, can't emphasize this enough, is our whole person. It's not just our physical extremities, it's our whole self. Not a part, but the whole is being surrendered in worship to our King. For the Christian, we don't put bulls on the altar, we place our bodies. We don't put our stuff on a physical altar, we give ourselves. We don't put our possessions, we give our person. This is the reasonable, rational response, worship to the grace of Christ. That we would submit our whole selves, toe to top, to the Lordship of Christ. But do not miss how Paul describes our sacrifice. See, the offering of ourselves, Paul tells us in this passage, is not rejected. It isn't cast aside. It isn't found wanting. What does he say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul says that our lives as a living sacrifice presented before God in obedience to him is holy and acceptable. We who were once characterized like Romans 1 or Romans 3. We who looked like 1 Corinthians verse 6 starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Nearly, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is not a holy and acceptable sacrifice, but look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Brothers and sisters, when we render our lives as living sacrifice to our king, we are accept, our sacrifices are accepted by God. We are like Isaiah, who sees the holiness of God and is undone. And as he's unraveling before God's holiness because of his lack of it, God takes away his guilt and atones for his sin. For us, this is not done, though, with a coal from the fire, but by the Son from the Father. We must be living sacrifices, and we can be, because God makes it possible. So where does this begin? Where Paul goes next, moving forward in this overarching idea of showing us what it means to be living sacrifices, the next few chapters show us the outworking of that. What does a living sacrifice look like and function like? It's as though we're on a boat and Paul has charted a course for us on a map. Now we must take the ship and steer it in the proper direction. First, he tells us where not to go. Look in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. We must not go the way of the world. We are not to be conformed, shaped, and molded like the world. We do not look like this age. We do not respond to circumstances like the world around us. The world around us is crumbling in fear, yet we stand in a steadfast hope because we have been purchased by our king. But the language here is not simply an active pursuit. Think of it like this. We're a boat in the ocean and the waves are crashing against us. And if we do not head in the right direction, then the waves will push us ashore and we will be shipwrecked. See, this happens slowly over time, but if we are not careful, then a passive attitude toward the world will mean conformity to it. We become like the world because we are in the world. There is a reason that the International Mission Board sends our missionaries to other countries to do their language training. Immersion is quite the effective teacher. Some of you are learning this to some degree with homeschooling, right? You've been immersed in it and you're learning trial by fire what it looks like to educate your kids in your own home. Blessings to you, brothers and sisters. Well, this is true of us in the world. If we are immersed in the world, we will become like it if we are not vigilant. It is true that our old man, our sin nature has been crucified with Christ. But like a snake whose head has been crushed, our old man still thrashes around and causes damage. So Paul tells us not to be conformed, but to be transformed. Look again in verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When our mind is renewed, it gives us the ability to discern the will of God. Well, what does Paul mean here? Well, one author puts it this way, giving us two helpful and simple definitions for the will of God. First, God has a will of decree and a will of desire. His will of decree is how things are, how things God has created them to be. Before the foundations of the world, God's word went forward and created the cosmos and set his plan for the foundations of the world. This is God's will of decree. 
But he also has a will of desire. And this, for us, is what he has commanded. Or rather, how things ought to be. That seems to be what Paul is referring to in this passage. Because look at the text. We're able to discern what is the will of God. And what does he describe it as? Well, it is what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So our lives, ruddered by our minds must be centered on the will of God, the things that are good, the things that are acceptable, the things that are perfect. And these are the things that verse 1 shows us are pleasing to God, right? Present your bodies as as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That acceptable word there is pleasing to God. Well, what pleases God? When we obey Him, when we obey His will. Now, you may ask this question, I've heard other people ask this question, particularly students, what do you think God's will for my life is? And many times when someone asks this question, they ask it with a specific decision in mind. Where do you think God wants me to go to school? Who do you think God wants me to marry? Do you think God wants me to buy this car? Whatever the case may be. But I would say that when we're talking about the will of God, it has less to do with specific decisions and it has more to do with the pattern and intentions of our hearts. I can say with little certainty where you should go to school. I can say with little certainty whether you should homeschool your kids or whether you should send them to school. I can say with little certainty whether you should buy that house. But I can tell you what God's will is for you is that you would obey him in all of life. Or in other words, that you would worship him in all of life. This is God's will for the believer, that we would submit everything, again, toe to top, to his lordship. This is God's will for us, that we would give our lives as living sacrifices in service to him, bringing glory to his name, serving him in all of life. So how do we respond? Well, two things I wanna mention that we can do in light of this text is first, we as believers, we can joyfully sacrifice. This is Paul's expectation for the church in Rome, that they would be compelled by the mercies of God to give their whole lives in his service. Oftentimes, the Christian life is spoken of in terms of death and sacrifice. And we find this precisely because this is Christ, what Christ told us to expect that to follow him would look like death because we are called to carry a cross like his own. Now for many of us, we might be in a season where we know we ought to give our whole lives, where we know we ought to be living sacrifices, but we're having a hard time being marked by joy. For us, it might be more duty than delight. So how do we respond when this is the case? Well, I think we follow Paul's lead here. We dwell on the mercies of God. We spend time mulling over in our minds the mercies of God. Maybe for you this means you should memorize a portion of the book of Romans that we've studied so far. Romans 8 would be a wonderful place to start. If you find yourself spiritually dry, where your affections are not stirred, where you can say, I'm sacrificing but it's not a joy, then dwell on the mercies of God. Dive deep into those first 11 chapters 
Because again, this is who we are, verses one, or chapters 1 to 11. This is who we are. Before Christ, this is who we are in Christ. And this is who we ought to be. Our activity follows what God establishes for us in the gospel. So spend time memorizing the scriptures, diving deep into them. And this is possible for you. I've challenged some of our students with memorizing the whole book of the Philippians. This is possible. Memorize the scriptures. Memorize parts of Romans so that you might dwell, you might seep your mind in the promises and mercies of God. Because when we understand the gravity of the gospel, then we will understand the freedom and joy that is found in surrendering sacrificially to our king. So first, we joyfully sacrifice. Second, we confidently obey. Paul points out in chapter 1 as well as in chapter 16 that he writes this letter in part so that the obedience of faith within the Roman church might be brought out. Now, if you're like me, insecurity can fill your life, particularly when you're charged with a task. When I was first learning to drive, I was a nervous wreck because I was a poor driver, not because I was a poor driver, excuse me, not because I was a poor driver, but because I was worried about disappointing my dad sitting in the passenger seat. I was worried that I might make a wrong turn, that my car wasn't clean enough, or that I hadn't changed my oil recently. Now keep in mind, my dad is not an angry or critical man, and never once did he fly off the handle at me. But I was nervous, and I lacked confidence because I wanted to please him, and I didn't know how. Well, how freeing for us as Christians is it to be reminded that our obedience in large and small measures is rendered as holy and acceptable to God. When we obey him, when we follow his word, then it is rendered as a pleasing aroma of sacrifice to our king. See, this is shown by Abraham. Obedience comes after being declared in the right. Abraham obeyed by faith, we read in Romans chapter four. He received righteousness, righteousness through faith and then he obeyed. So obey with confidence, not with pride and not with fear. To stretch this boat analogy just a little further, our obedience doesn't propel the boat. Rather, the boat is propelled by the spirit through the water and our obedience are wakes behind it. This is what we ought to be doing, joyfully sacrificing and confidently obeying. Now, given our odd circumstances, I want to leave you with four more things that you can be doing, specific things that you can be doing during this season. And these are drawn from a book called True Worshippers by Bob Coughlin, which picks, on many picks up many of the ideas that we see in our text this morning, that we are to be living sacrifices. The first thing that we can do as living sacrifices, even in our scattered state, is we can receive as living sacrifices, we must not reverse the order. We give our lives to Christ because he first gave himself to us. So before we are givers of self, we are recipients of him. We are recipients of the grace of Christ through the gospel of Christ as told to us in the word of Christ. 
So brothers, if you are not using this season as an opportunity to steep yourself in the life-giving word of Christ, that is where we begin our receiving. We receive from God his word so that we would know his mercies and that then we would give our lives in sacrifice to him. One author puts it this way, worship never begins with us. It is always a response to the truth. It flows out of an understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. It begins with his revelation and redemption. So we must ensure that the Bible, which contains this revelation and points us to God's word of redemption, stays right at the heart of our meetings and our own spiritual lives. Brothers and sisters, during this time where we cannot gather, we must be clear and adamant about our need to dive into the scriptures, to be recipients. Because if we want to live a life of living sacrifice to our king, then we need to know what our king has done for us and expects from us. Our lives of worship are directed by the scriptures. That's why Paul directs our attention to the will of God. We don't have to guess what our lives will look like as living sacrifices. God in his kindness has told us. So we must be recipients Recipients of God's grace and recipients of God's word. Next, living sacrifices exalt. Since we have been bought by the blood of Christ, we respond to God by exalting his name in all of life. And this isn't isolated to our songs, although we'll talk about that more in a moment. But this is in all of life. Our efforts, our endeavors, our actions, our thoughts should be to the worship of our Lord. Paul's language in our text is one of our whole self, internally and externally. We exalt the name of Jesus. As Paul instructs us, this starts in the mind. And maybe for you, this starts with an awareness of God. Maybe you should pray this prayer that's found in the Valley of a Vision, a Valley of Vision a collection of Puritan prayers. It says this, I confess that thou hast not been in all my thoughts, that the knowledge of thyself as the end of my being has been strangely overlooked, that I have never seriously considered my heart need. But although my mind is perplexed and divided, my nature perverse, yet my secret disposition still desire thee. Let me not delay to come to thee. Break the fatal enchantment that binds my evil affections and bring me to a happy mind that rests in thee. For thou hast made me and canst not forget me. Let thy spirit teach me the vital lessons of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us be living sacrifices that exalt. And one of the ways that we do this is we are living sacrifices that sing. To be a sacrifice is to, by definition, definition, be an instrument of worship. Yet, yes, of course, our whole lives are worship, but the singing of God's people is particularly important to us. It is abundant in the scriptures. The scriptures are inundated with pictures of God's people singing. First and foremost, because we serve a singing God. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that God sings over his people. We read in the New Testament that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, sang with his disciples. And we find in the book of Ephesians that singing is, being is tied with being filled with the Spirit. See, brothers and sisters, singing expresses the work 
of God in our lives, particularly the work of the Spirit. See, the chief activity of the Spirit in our lives is to make Christ more glorious to us. And when we sing, we are showing that this work is happening within us because we want to exalt Christ in our lives and on our lips. And this is certainly not dependent on a worship leader. Taylor and the other musicians in our church are serving us so well by giving us music that we can sing along with, but we are not dependent on them. This type of singing should be happening in our homes as well as in our gatherings. This is why we say when we commend to you family worship, read, sing, and pray. And this is especially true for those of us, myself included, who may not be gifted musically. See, we can sing the praises of Christ and show that he's our king in spite of our inability. We give him our all, even whenever it may not be appealing to those around us. Last, living sacrifices gather. We as the church are a collection of living sacrifices. And when we gather, we magnify the name of Christ in ways that we can't when we are apart. That's what makes this season in particular so difficult. But it is also what will make our reunion so sweet. See, we gather as a sign that we are bound together because we are bound to Christ. And I hope that as the season progresses, as long as it may, that it develops within us a longing for the gathering of the church. But even more than just the Sunday when we will resume our services as normal, my prayer is that this develops within us a longing that we would gather with Christ's church as a whole, that we would anticipate the wedding feast of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, pray to this end. Pray that we would long to be living sacrifices that live in a community of living sacrifices. And that one day when Christ returns, we pray that it would be soon, that we would join in fellowship with all of the living sacrifices, all of Christ's church before our King. I want to close with a line from a song that says this. And so with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth. As we share in his suffering, we proclaim Christ will come again and will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. Brothers and sisters, let us be living sacrifices. Let's pray. God, in your kindness, you show us your mercy. You show us that we are a people undeserving of mercy, yet you are full of it. And so you give it to us freely through your son. So Father, may we here at Southside Baptist be compelled by your mercies to present our bodies as living sacrifices. May they be holy and acceptable to you. May this be our reasonable, rational, expected spiritual worship. Father, may we not be conformed to this world, but may we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. May our minds be centered on your word so that we may be centered on your will that we may be able to test and discern what is your will, what is good and acceptable and perfect, and walk in obedience to it. 
And Father, as we renew our minds, let it also reveal to us the reality that we live in a broken world, a world that you will one day fully redeem when your son returns. Father, we long for the day that we gather here, but we also long even more to the day where we will gather at the foot of your throne to sing your praises evermore. Let us walk in obedience today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.